Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. Luke 23, as we reflect upon the Gospel of Jesus Christ and the death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior. I structured the service this morning, even the songs, to reflect the truth of the passage of Scripture that we're going to look at. And as a reflection of much of what we see in our culture today, you know, when we think of the Easter celebration, the final week of, of Christ's life, that, that week of passion begins with a triumphal entry and ultimately the capstone of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we look around our communities We look around our country, we look around our world, and we see all types of celebrations and fanfare on this particular day, a celebration, a remembrance of the resurrection of our Savior. For many of those celebrations, it is high church, deeply liturgical, glorious, and in many ways beautiful to watch unfold before you. And other ministries and evangelicalism, it's, it's more of a party kind of atmosphere with, with the loudness and, and the glory of celebration and singing and shouting, and certainly there's nothing wrong either with liturgical or that opposite end of things. But I also think it's truly important that we remember that when we commemorate events such as this and when God's people gather to remember the things that matter most. This is a time of worship. It's bigger than celebration. It's bigger than what we do. It's bigger than what we say. It's bigger than what we dress. It's bigger than our traditions. It is a heartfelt worship as we reflect upon a gospel that rescued us for eternity. Last week, we reflected in the beginning of the message on the triumphal entry and the empty pretense of much of that proceeding. If you look back again today closely at that text, as Jesus entered into Jerusalem, they would throw coats and and palms ahead of Him. In unison, they they were aroused emotionally and otherwise, and they would sing and shout, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. It was a party and a festive event that just grew as he walked through the streets of Jerusalem. The cold, harsh reality is that many of those in that processional would be the very ones who would cry at the end of the week, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. That's the difference between true worship and mere celebration. As we look at that triumphal entry, one of the things that we often overlook is how Jesus saw all of that, and in particular, the people who had inhabited the city and the nation of Israel, which was represented there. We read in Luke chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, a compassionate 
plea, and a compassionate cry, a deeply emotional and moving experience for him. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, the people who reject the truth as, as God sends it to him. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. And Christ was lamenting over this city. And this is prior to the triumphal entry, but lamenting the unbelief and the unwillingness to believe in spite of all of the messengers that had come to them. And He warns, behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's not speaking about Palm Sunday. He's speaking about the glorious return of Jesus Christ to sit on His rightful throne of David in the city of Jerusalem at the end of all time. As we reflect upon that, He gives grave warning concerning the forsakenness of Israel that would come true in 70 A.D. when the Roman army would come in to squash a Jewish revolt and just ransack Jerusalem and destroy the temple as a consequence for their unbelief and as a consequence for the rejection of all that Jesus lamented. The second time we read of Jesus weeping over this city is in Luke chapter 19, verse 41. It says, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, what that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Not a political peace, not a cultural peace. He is talking about the peace of God that comes through Jesus Christ. Salvation had come to Jerusalem and Israel in the triumphal entry, and their ears were closed to that truth and they had no time to recollect that peace that he was offering them, the forgiveness of sins. And now they are hidden from your eyes. Your spiritual blindness has closed you off to any kind of truth. Now, this happens shortly after the triumphal entry. That glorious celebration it wasn't really a celebration at all. I think there's a distinction that you and I need to make between a religious celebration and deep spiritual worship based upon the truth. Why I'm approaching it this way ought to be obvious to most of you. You can reflect back even on the ABF I did last Sunday. I can't believe the change in the tone of a culture over the last couple of weeks and the targeting of Christianity as being the source of all of the unrest as true Christians stand up for truth in a world that doesn't recognize any truth. Things have changed so drastically in our culture today as I look at all of these celebrations. There's this guttural response almost like Christ's response. These people are without knowledge and they're dead in their trespasses and sin, and they're just going through the motions. And I don't want us to go through the motions this morning. 
I want you to be moved through the truth to worship. And that can be however God might lead, sometimes in quiet reflection and contemplation, sometimes singing out, hallelujah, I did hear that this morning, glorious, but all the time leading to a change in our lives. Because when Jesus enters into your life, you change, and you change forever. And then you wait in the darkness until He returns again. That's what He's speaking of in these texts. So as we focus on true worship today, as we focus on on true truth, if you would, we focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ. People know that well, less now than 40 years ago when I started in ministry, but they know that truth. The gospel is the beginning of of this atoning work of Christ that can be traced back to the virgin birth, reflecting upon His sinless life, understanding His vicarious atoning work as He died on our behalf and for our sins on the cross of Calvary only to be raised a third day, bringing victory over both sin and death that no longer reigns in us. The body they may kill. God's truth prevails, and we will stand in the presence of our King someday. That's the glorious gospel. That's what we celebrate or reflect upon. That's what creates the worship in our lives. Worship is focused on putting our emphasis and our attention on Christ and what He's accomplished. Celebration is putting our focus on attention to what makes us happy and what we like. They're not the same thing. So I call upon you to worship on this day in which we remember the glorious resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And make no mistake about it, in a multicultural, pluralistic kind of world who tells you there's so many different paths to God, if you are talking about the God of the Bible, there is one path, and Jesus makes it perfectly clear. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That is not a popular message today. It is considered to be exclusive. It is considered to be rejecting of everybody else, but it's a truth that sets you free. And if you wish to be free indeed, you must come to God on God's terms, and that is Christ alone, Christ alone. We sang that this morning. Nothing added and nothing taken away from it, Christ alone. For even in the early portions of the church as it came to pass in in the book of Acts, It is made clear to those unbelieving Jews in Israel, as well as the believing Jews in Israel, that neither is there salvation in any other, for there's no other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. Do you know Him? And if you do, there's time for worship this morning. That may have a characteristic of celebration, but it must be about Christ. It cannot be about us and, and those things that we do in our rituals and routines. I'm not saying they're bad, but apart from Christ, they're nothing. What moves us to worship is our glorious King and the gospel of Jesus Christ that changes everything. And if you're not moved, to worship, perhaps I 
should remind you of what Paul says in Romans chapter 5. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. You know how glorious that is? That what brings us to worship on a day like today. And because you've been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. We were vessels of wrath fit for destruction. We are now children of the King. And they can take our lives, but they cannot touch our souls. We are eternally secure in the Savior. That matters today. That matters with this left turn of our culture. It's not even a left turn. It's a different map. How did we get here? What did you expect? In a pagan culture, devoid of truth, and outside of God? Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome. It doesn't mean He squashes your enemies. It means He's taking care of your sin, and you win. We win. We say, well, can we get a piece of that now? No, not always. But it's coming. You can't be paying attention and not think it's coming sooner rather than later. It's coming where everything will be okay. So this gospel will bring us all the way home into the presence of our King, and it has ramifications for life. We reminded ourselves that this gospel and the example of Jesus is an example to every one of us as well. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. Today's worship is not about you being served. It's about us serving our King in worship. See how that all fits together? That's what makes this glorious no matter what's happening in your life. You know what my life has been like in the last couple of months. I still come to worship my glorious King, because everything's going to be okay. As we reflect upon that service of our King and that worship that will take place, we turn our attention to this text. And in Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 32, we read two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with Him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified Him. And the criminals, one on His right side and one on His left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide His garments. And the people stood by watching. The rulers scoffed at Him, saying, He saved others. Let Him save Himself, if He is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals were hanged, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do not, do not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. 
And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sunlight failed, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly, this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the woman who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. We don't have the time and maybe not even the stomach to reflect upon the gruesome nature of crucifixion and the agonizing beatings, scourgings, and whippings outside of even this verbal insult that went on and on and on for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But it's important to remember how gruesome and painful and grievous that crucifixion was because it was for your sin and it was for mine. He deserved none of it. We read in the text, as all of these insults were coming towards Christ in various ways and through various sources, Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's the first of seven different sayings of Christ on the cross of Calvary. But we must understand that within the context of what he's saying and in these means of forgiveness, he's speaking about those who were there who had no sense of what was taking place. They didn't understand the gravity of the situation. They saw him as a mere mortal and someone who was sentenced to death. This is not the universalism of Rob Bell that says, see, eventually everyone gets into heaven because Jesus on the cross said, forgive them, all of them. That is not what this means. He recognizes and understands that there were people gathered, caught up in, in, in all of this pageantry and celebration that were there and joined in. They had no understanding of what was truly taking place. You know, whenever we come to days like this, expect spiritual warfare. I haven't coughed in, in two weeks. I'm going to throw a cough drop in, and we're going to preach the gospel anyhow. This forgiveness is this forgiveness of those who are involved in all of this, not an individual forgiveness that, that tells us that everybody makes it. How do we know that? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They didn't understand. But after the resurrection, 
and the preaching that took place in Jerusalem, and as that gospel spread out into the rest of the world, they did understand, and there they would find themselves condemned in their sins. Don't mistake this for some notion that if we just wait long enough, everything will work out and everybody's forgiven, because that's not what he is saying in this text. There's an individual responsibility that each one of us has to take assessment of this gospel and make a decision in our life to receive or to reject said gospel, and that is where this eternal accountability comes from. But it introduces us in this context to two others. On either side of him, criminals crucified with him. It was normal back then for prisoners to be scourged before they would go to the cross. These men are not in great shape either. This was a gruesome event that was taking place. It was the worst of worst of death sentences in this, this Roman Empire. And Luke, for some reason, and only Luke, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, draws our attention to these men. There's a reason that he draws our attention to these men. And as we reflect upon what's happening, we will see and understand some of the the theologies that would come out in Pauline letters being realized in the life of at least one of these criminals. One of the criminals, verse 39, who were hanged railed at him, joined in with the rest of the crowd saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. He wasn't asking. He was ridiculing and making fun of this man, Jesus, who was being crucified just like them and receiving most of the torment from the crowd at that particular time. This one thief and his ridicule is rebuked by the other man on the other side of Christ, saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? Hey, listen, we're no different than this guy right here. We are under condemnation. We're on this cross, these crosses for a reason. But he differentiates, and he says, and we indeed justly, we are suffering rightly for our own sins. We are suffering rightly for breaking Roman law. We deserve to be here, and we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man, Jesus, done nothing wrong. He gets his theology right better than some seminary graduates. We're guilty. He's not. That's the essence of the gospel. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He doesn't belong here. We do. In essence, that is the reflection of his faith. In essence, he is making it very clear in this context that he is guilty, and he understands his guilt not just before the Roman government. He starts by saying, do you not fear God? He understands that he is accountable to a God, maybe not the God of the Bible, maybe not the God that we might preach and teach here, but he realizes after this life there is a judgment. He, he acknowledges that. He understands that. How in the world did he understand that? The Holy Spirit opened up his heart and mind. That's how he understood it. 
could be no other way than God reaching into his life and, and beginning this process of transformation. So he acknowledges that he is guilty. He acknowledges that he deserves everything that he's getting. And then he makes a faith expression that is absolutely astounding. He, he, he said, Jesus, because of all of that, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He tied the kingdom to the man on the center cross. Somehow, through spiritual enlightenment by God's Holy Spirit, he saw the truth that would set him free. Without knowing all of the theology that accompanied that truth. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, because of your confession and acknowledgement of just punishment and your expressed belief in me, today you will be with me in paradise. And in an instant, this man's life was changed forever. It's the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but pay close attention. It is the work of God through His Holy Spirit that brought this thief to repentance, because the Bible reminds us in Romans chapter 3, there is none righteous, no, not one. There was none who understands. There was none who seeketh after God. Everyone has turned aside, and together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. <coughs> Let's settle this notion today. You don't find your way to God. God finds you on the way. And through the ministry of the Holy Spirit transforms you in a glorious kind of way. You don't have the capacity yourself to find redemption in Jesus Christ. Now, I want to recall one of the phrases we spoke of last week. He knew those who were of his own. In eternity past, God knew that this thief was one of God's children through Jesus Christ and would come to know him on the cross and in that capacity. There's nothing left for chance in the Scripture. and We have no chance outside of Jesus Christ for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Again, I asked, do you know Him? Otherwise, this sin simply turns into a celebration devoid of any kind of worship. But if you understand what's, what's happening here, it changes everything. When He says, Jesus remember me. I received a little clip by a friend in an email. I had seen this message on a couple of occasions where Alistair Begg speaks to this particular passage of Scripture, and he has a little bit of fun with it, but he brings a gravity to the situation. And he says, when I get into heaven, I want to go find this thief and say, you made it. How did you make it? How, how did this all work out in, in your life? It refers back to the standard line of Christendom. If you were to die tonight seeking entry into heaven, what would you have to say for yourself? He goes on and having a little bit of fun with it. says, when this man gets to the gates of heaven, and the gatekeeper says, why are you here? 
And why should I let you in? Elster Begg says, how could he respond other than, I don't know, I don't know. Goes on to point out he had no Bible training. He wasn't baptized. He hadn't gone to a seminary. He didn't understand the doctrine. Begg goes on to say, maybe he was asked the question, what is your position on the doctrine of justification by faith alone? He had no understanding of any of that stuff. So on what basis are you here? The phrase that Alistair Begg uses that captures the essence of the text is simple. The man on the middle cross said, I should come. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father except through me. He had an invitation from the King of kings and Lord of lords by grace through faith to believe. But he couldn't explain it in a hundred years, no matter how long a conversation you might have with him. But I want to point out an important distinction. That is one man, a fleeting moment in time, who experienced radical transformation through the man on the middle cross that is not duplicated very often in real life. There is such thing as deathbed confessions, but they are few and far between. Many people reaching out in fear, not belief. We cannot build a theology of evangelicalism solely based on the thief on the cross. The lesson that we learn is clear. Salvation in Jesus Christ is by faith alone. You cannot attach anything else to it. It is by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, to the glory of God alone. Amen? God did it. Yet at the same time, the distinction that we need to make as this individual went from a moment of unbelief to a moment of belief to mere hours later being in the presence of his king. But that's not the experience of most of us. And the important distinction needs to be made that faith in Christ is by faith alone. But it doesn't just stand alone. And this is where the rest of the Scriptures come in. Otherwise, we begin to speak a a gospel of easy believism. Just believe these things and you're in. It doesn't matter what you do with your life. And I think that's what we'd inherited in Western Christianity today. Do whatever you want. Be whatever you want. Name yourself as whatever you might be. And you can have Jesus too. Life doesn't work that way. There's a consequence to belief. There's a second stage of belief. And to pluck this one distinct time in history that it was absolutely glorious is one time in history that was absolutely glorious. And you have to look at the rest of the Scripture And when you look at the rest of the Scripture, you begin to understand that not only are you called to salvation, you are equally called, if your life isn't taken in the next two hours, to faithfully follow in obedience this same Jesus Christ. 
That's the kind of fellowship and that's the kind of faith that our world wants nothing to do with. We want Jesus on our terms. We'll just name it and claim it. But this distinction is critically important and has been dealt with over the course of time, even in historical and theological debates. Jesus says in John chapter 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's pretty simple. How are you doing on that? Those true believers here, how are you doing on keeping the commandments? Any, anyone struggle from time to time? Nobody. Whew, thank you. Yes. One, one honest boy, right? Struggle from time to time. Struggles a. My middle name, right? Isn't that what happens sometimes? He says, you don't have to struggle. Listen, I will ask the Father, and He'll give you another helper, the Holy Spirit, who will be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. The world can't have Him because it neither sees Him or knows Him, but you know Him, and He will dwell in you, and He will be in you. And I'm not asking of you something that you can't do. I am going to provide you what you need to follow in obedience. You're not capable by yourself. Neither was the man on the cross. It was by faith alone. But faith alone is not easy believism. And in the Reformation, there was a restlessness about this. John Calvin writes in his Institutes, I wish the reader to understand that as often as we mention faith alone, we're not thinking of a dead faith which does not work and does not love, but a holding faith to be the cause of justification. You are declared righteous by faith alone, nothing else attached to it. Faith alone that Christ died for you, that He's offering forgiveness to you, and He's the only way to the Father that is faith alone. But He goes on to say, it is therefore faith alone which declares you righteous Yet the faith that declares you righteous is not alone. It doesn't, doesn't end there. Martin Luther says, faith is a living and a restless thing. Genuine faith cannot be inoperative. We're not saved by works, but if there be no works, there must be something amiss with faith. James says, faith without works is dead. I'm not here to pick a fight. I'm here to separate the worshipers from the celebrants. And all over the world, in every corner of the globe, we can, we can find people celebrating. But those who are worshiping understand their obligation to the king. They know that they've been called to obedience. They acknowledge they've been filled with his spirit. And they realize their life is no longer their own. They can't do whatever they want. They must be obedient to the one that purchased them. The text that we're looking at is a glorious text of instant salvation. And it's the story of your life and my life. But we didn't die after two hours. And while we live the rest of this life, we are called to obedience in Christ. And His plan for you and I is to conform us to the image of His Son. 
And Martin Luther is making the case, if there's no conformity, there's a problem with your faith. And that is Western civilization and the evangelical church today. Just believe, just celebrate, have a good time, be your own person. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a hard gospel. It reminds me every single day, I am not worthy. I am not able. I am not capable in doing everything that I'm required to do, but God has given me the gift of His Spirit that is changing me for the better every single day, and I'm not the man I used to be. That is genuine faith. And if we if we can't get this distinction right, there will be people who walk out of an Easter celebration thinking they're okay and they're not okay. I don't want you to be okay. True salvation means that sin loses its grip on us, and we are changed forever. And from the moment of salvation until the time we see Christ, we're going through this gradual process of sanctification, being molded into the image of our glorious Savior. And when we see Him face to face, it's finished. And we will become like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. But right now, we're a work in progress, sometimes backward, sometimes forward, but always moving in the direction to obedience to Christ. That's genuine Christianity. And that's what true worship compels us to. Mere celebration allows us to check a date on a calendar and think that we're okay. And that's the greatest lie of the devil that is wreaking havoc in Christendom and Western civilization today. You don't get to have it your way. There is one King. There is one Savior. There is one Lord over all. And we must worship and obey. Well, how, Pastor Jim? That's the glorious message of Resurrection Sunday. When Jesus raised from the dead, He conquered death. When Jesus raised from the dead, He conquered sin. And Paul says in Romans chapter 6, because He raised from the dead, you are no longer bound to your sin. You're freed from the power of sin. Because Jesus rose from the dead, you no longer live as you used to live. Because Jesus rose from the dead, you no longer do what you used to do. Because Jesus rose from the dead, you are risen in Christ to newness of life. Everything changes. He makes all things new. And no doubt it's a process. But if there's nothing new, perhaps Martin Luther is right there's something amiss with your faith. It's important that we make that distinction. And now as we move on to celebrate the glorious resurrection of our Savior, we hear the words of the angel, He is not here, for He has risen as He said. I love that phrase, as He said. You've heard me say this often. I'll say it again. Every single word that Jesus said and every promise He made, He will keep and He always keeps. He is not here. He told you He wasn't going to be here. He is alive. And there was a band and a processional, and no. They were moved by deep reverence and awesome respect, and they went away to think about this glorious truth that they had just heard. What was their response? It wasn't celebration. It was worship. 
They gather together in that upper room. The Spirit comes in Pentecost, and they do glorious things. But it's all about being raised to a new way of life and service that is tied to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, this gospel is a glorious gospel that impacts your past. Some of you have a lot of baggage in Jesus Christ. He removes that baggage. He takes away our past. He allows us to walk in newness of life, and He begins to change us for His glory. Because Jesus rose from the dead in the present, no matter what we face, we can face with confidence and belief and with worship that everything's going to be okay. Where you've heard that before. It's one thing for me to say that. I've had to live that for a couple of months now. I was in a bad way. I didn't like where I was. But I knew it wasn't the end of anything because everything's going to be okay. Do you know that in your heart? That's because of the resurrection and the gospel. I know it's going to be okay. And how about in the future? That's the best part of the glorious resurrection. They guarantee that even the dead in Christ will rise and be presented before the throne of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, where forever we will sing, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ always results in worship. It doesn't always result in celebration. The two things are different. And we will worship, and we will worship, and we will worship, and it will be glorious. That's why when we come to the communion table, Jesus reminds us to proclaim His death until He come. How do, how do you now, as one who has encountered a risen Savior, proclaim His death? Live the life that He called you to live. Speak the truth that He's called you to speak. Take the time to worship Him in all of His holiness and glory and remind yourselves that we cannot be the same people that we used to be and claim to know the Savior. Paul calls a young pastor, Titus, to remembrance by writing, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. You understand what you're being called to. It's, it's obedience. It's a different way of life. Not the same way. You can't just stay in your sins. And we are doing it until the blessed hope, the appearing, the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people of His own, a possession of people who are zealous for good works. By the way, Jesus taught us how to live our lives as a servant. When He prayed at the most trying hour of His earthly existence, not my will but yours be done, Father. We're called to live that way, to worship that way, to glory that way, and to remember that way. And a stunning vision of God 
and a stunning understanding of the atoning work of Christ will be the only things that move us from where we were to where we need to be, men and women living righteous lives for the glory of our King, because He is alive. Do you know Him? Do you know Him? The demands of the gospel are steep. The grace and mercy of our Savior never end. And we come to this place on this day for no other reason than to worship. Father, accept our worship. Teach us to grasp the glory of our King. Remind us of the reality that without you, we can do nothing. Show us that we are rescued by your Son, raised to a newness of life by the glorious resurrection of our Savior, to live differently, to do differently, and to yield and to bend and to mold our will towards yours for the glory of the King. In an age in which we live, it's growing more and more uncomfortable. May you find people faithful. May we live our lives not by our will, but yours, Lord. Being reminded every day of your glory through the work of Christ and the cross and the glorious resurrection. Continue to make all things new until the day we see you and become like you. When we long for that day, even so, come, Lord Jesus. We worship our Savior and our King, for whose name we pray. Amen.